Hello, everyone. I'm Alicia Swami. I'm here with my co-host, Keely Severson and Eric Johnson. We are exposing mold. Today, we have Dr. Scott McMahon joining us, and this is such a great pleasure. I've been working with Heather for so long to get you on the show, probably about two years. Oh, Can my. You that? I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I know that you're so busy. That's why. And which is good because you're helping the mold SIRS injured population. Um, so let's get into who you are. So you're a board certified physician, you're practicing pediatric medicine, but then you switched over to helping patients with chronic inflammatory response syndrome, correct? Well, I, I actually did both practices, both pediatrics and uh, uh, mold-based illness practice for 10 years and then retired from the pediatric practice about three plus years ago. So now it's just the, the chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Very cool. And so that led you to work alongside Dr. Richie Shoemaker, and then you guys founded SIRSX, right? And that's a website that helps people get familiarized with SIRS and what patients can do and medical providers can do to support those patients. Yes, SIRSX is a, is a website that has uh, historical information from like previous uh, conferences. In fact, uh, I was just reviewing the other day, Eric Johnson at the 2015 Phoenix conference talking to us about mold avoidance. Um, it, it, uh, uh, it also has uh, close to a thousand uh, print literature uh, publications from the environmental and medical uh, specialists. Uh, it, SIRSX, along with Surviving Mold, put on the put on annual mold conferences. So they archive those and, and they're archiving other things also for patients and lawyers and uh, environmental personnel, as well as medical personnel to be able to learn about this illness and kind of get, get information at a very basic level, because that's where people need to start and then uh, be able to build up their knowledge so that hopefully they can become expert at it. And particularly for patients, that's useful so that they can um, advocate for themselves. Fantastic. Let's take it back to the beginning. How did you become interested in yeah. surgery? Well, there's there's a couple of stories and they're both accurate. Um, the easiest one is there was a, um, a, a local businessman whose daughter had gotten quite ill and he alleged that it was because of the high school that she was going to. Does that does that sound familiar to anyone? Anyway, this was a you know hundred thousand square feet building uh, on the top floor. It had hundred thousand square feet of flat roof and a hundred thousand square feet of basement. It was built as a bomb shelter, and uh, and she started becoming very ill in her first semester there as a freshman, where she spent most most of her days in the basement. Um, and, and this local businessman took his daughter to a number of different doctors around the country trying to figure out what was wrong with her. Eventually found Dr. Richie Shoemaker, who told her this, this is what the problem is, you know, dig lab test, documented it. And, and the businessman came back to the local school district and said, I'd like you to, to test your school to see if there's a mold problem and, and where to fix it. And so they did testing, but they, they just did spore trap testing, which is it's it's in in the literature they call it variable. You get variable results because it's relatively insensitive. And for people that are sick, you don't need an insensitive test. You need a very sensitive test. But anyway, even on that test, they found evidence of stachybotrys and other things. And the indoor uh, environmental people that did the testing said, "Oh, it's normal." So this businessman said, "Hey, I want you to do testing the right way. 
I'll even pay for it. So, I mean, that's going to be probably to do it right, $100,000 out of his own pocket. He offered to do it. And the, the school district refused. And so he then brought a lawsuit to force the school district to do the right kind of testing. And that's how I got involved is, is I got kind of pulled into that. Um, I had actually known the family. I had taken care of the, the young lady when she was younger, when I worked at a different practice. And, um, and I started learning about mold. And, and as a result of it, it was like my mind was blown. You know, I saw my own patients and saw that they had very similar histories. Um, I saw that when they were exposed, you know, like in their home or at that school that they got sick and it was very predictable how they would get sick when they, when they left, like for weekends and breaks, they got better. And then as soon as they came back, they got sick. And it's the hallmark of an environmental illness. Uh, I saw the, I did the lab testing that Dr. Shoemaker developed uh, and, and saw that there were like six, almost 60% of the lab tests were abnormal where you would expect 5% to be abnormal. And I just realized this was, this was a real deal. And then I went back and, and I, um, I actually interviewed Dr. Shoemaker, spent a couple of days in his practice, wanted to make sure that, you know, he was really legitimate because I'd never met him and I hadn't read much in the literature about this. And so I, I watched him, uh, take care of patients. He showed me how he collected his data, how he did his analysis. Uh, I mean, he just was an open book. And, and I left that weekend realizing that this man has stumbled upon something that is, is very big and very real. And so I came back and I started treating my patients. And I saw that the ones who did the therapy got better and the ones that didn't do the therapy uh, didn't get better. They stayed the same. And, and I realized this is a real thing. And so in that process, you know, it opened a, a clinic specifically to see these kind of patients. And that was in 2010. That was a long answer, wasn't it? Yeah, that's an amazing story about the high school. About what uh, time frame is this? So the, the young lady got sick, if I recall, probably around 2008 or 2009. Um, it probably was 2008, and they started seeing Dr. Shoemaker then. I got involved toward the end of, of 2009. It's interesting that um, popularity or knowledge of mold illness has grown so much that now people seem to assume that this must have been known all along, yet it was so recent that nobody could get any help. That, that is correct. And, and you know, Eric, when, when I first started doing this and seeing patients in early 2010, it was not unusual for me to have found that uh, my patients had seen 20, 30, even as many as 50 other doctors before they found me. And they nobody could tell them what was wrong with them. They usually said it was a psychiatric illness or at least someone in that milieu had told them, you know, they should see a psychiatrist. Um, they were treated for depression. They were labeled as being lazy. They were labeled as being malingerers. They were labeled as being, um, uh, you know, like maybe addicts, you know, on some sort of medication that was legal or maybe not legal, or maybe is legal now. Uh, you know, I mean, and 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 that's because we 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 just didn't know, and the the information was just not as disseminated as now. Now people typically within a couple of years of their symptoms or even less are finding it because of, you know, podcasts like your own and books like your own that are disseminating the information. And so the, the populace is becoming aware of it more and more treating physicians are becoming aware of it. 
more and more uh, indoor environmental people are becoming aware of the illness that's attached, not just the runny nose and allergy symptoms, but the actual chronic fatiguing illness that can be attached. And 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 our lawyers are are learning about it too. And so my hope is that as this groundswell continues, that um, uh, that every doctor is going to become aware of this because then it's much easier. It's much easier to treat this when somebody's only been, you know, sick for a few months as opposed to been sick for 10 or 15 years. So uh, kudos to you guys for, for what you're doing. Whatever happened with that school? So that school um, eventually remediated, to my knowledge, three times over the subsequent five years. And to be honest, I used to see a lot of patients from that school, both both uh, uh, the children and and support staff and teachers and whatnot. And and I think they must have done a fairly good job of remediation. They don't consult with me on it, but but the number of people that I'm seeing coming from that school has gone considerably down, much, much less. So they must have done a pretty good job. Well, as you know, the um, original chronic fatigue syndrome cluster was in a high school. Yes. And... (laughs) I'm, I'm from Northern California, so and I was in medical school back when the the trucky yuppie flu came around. Yeah, we're we're pretty famous for that. <laughs> yes. So what was remarkable to me? I'm sorry. I was just going to say you were at Ground Zero there. Um, yeah, I, I was right in the thick of it. I had been in all the, the sick buildings, and I watched the um, confusion over how this mystery illness developed. And what was remarkable was, as you say, the Truckee High School, the uh, ground zero, the, the central core mystery of how 10 teachers in a single room could all get sick simultaneously when across the hallway, like the dean's office or the library next door, people weren't becoming chronically ill. And since I had, um, <laughs> that's amazing that you mentioned this school that you dealt with being like a bomb shelter. Because I got sick in the military in the 1970s in a bomb shelter, Hitler's bunker, as a matter of fact. Wow. And um, it was when the bunker flooded and the basement armory grew black mold over the cardboard boxes. Hmm. So I got a real lesson in what black mold could do to my unit in the 1970s. And here I saw the similar situation at my old high school in Truckee, where right at the entrance where this horrible effect was making teachers sick that was the same kind of thing. And here the Center for Disease Control, all the researchers, the doctors all over the world that analyzed this this incident, they couldn't make any sense of it. And they didn't listen when they were told about uh, the possibility of mold. So it was remarkable that Dr. Shoemaker was the only doctor in the entire world, the only one who read about that incident recognized it for what it probably was and put that in his book, Desperation Medicine. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, I think you told me back in 2015 that in the, 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 there was a storage room that was adjacent to the teacher's lounge and that storage room was filled with black mold, stachybotrys, etc. cetera. Is, is that correct? Well, actually, uh, it was in the carpet. The, oh. um Entrance to the school had a lot of students tracking in mud and snow, and the carpet was perpetually wet. And the teacher's lounge involved was right next to the entrance. I see. 
And there was something about the, the air movement that, and the way that people transferred the water into the school, that it was extremely local to this one specific area. And as I say, with the library, the dean's office, you could be just barely out of range and escape the effects. And uh, if you were in the thick of it and didn't recognize your peril in time and get out, you were at risk for developing this chronic illness that was later called chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't a yuppie influenza. You know, that's uh, kind of amazing that it was never called yuppie flu at uh, Lake Tahoe. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it wasn't. Uh, I, I think that was the medical community kind of deriding the people of Truckee, Lake Tahoe and whatnot, you know, using the term yuppie and flu and whatnot. You know, it's almost like this is something in your head. Yeah, if I can clear that up a bit, the uh, yuppie flu was actually a denigrating term that was, was developed in Boston. Oh. And you know, that was in 1985. And when the illness of the teachers was first suspected to be a form of chronic active Epstein-Barr virus, they called in an expert who came all the way across the country and told us about the, the yuppie flu they were seeing in Boston. And that uh, this term was pure scorn, pure denigration. There yeah. was there was no actual su suspicion that it was yuppies. It was just to make fun of people with this chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome. Right. So uh, we did not accept that name. We called it the Raggedy Ann syndrome. Okay. So there was a, a flu that went through at this time. And what I saw was that after this flu went through, it was the people in the sick buildings who weren't recovering. So it was at Truckee High School, it was North Tower High School, and a local casino, all of which were well known to be problematic buildings. Everybody else recovered from that flu, but not the people in the sick buildings. So that was the pattern that was clearly established, that it was a combination of a transient virus and this sick building syndrome. And the, amazingly enough, because it was not in the medical literature at this time, the uh, doctors read about mold because we told them we, we think it's mold or at least bacterial colonies. We think it's some microbial growth in the schools. There was nothing in the medical literature to, at this time, so they couldn't make the connection. Right. So later on, when we reminded them of this after toxic mold had been discovered and the idea was being disseminated, that um, they said, well, there's, there's no study. Well, of course not. It wasn't known at the time. You have to come back and do the study. Exactly. Go, but there's nothing in the literature to prove it. So therefore, there's nothing to follow up. We need proof in the medical literature before we can come back and study this. So it wound up in this weird catch-22. Right. You know, in, in 1992, I moved uh, from the East Coast to, to New Mexico. And during that summer, or maybe it was the summer of 93, they they found hantavirus and and there there were no studies on that but you know the CDC employed the people and the resources and whatnot to create the literature for that and and I know the CDC was involved in what happened in Truckee but it's a shame that that they didn't find anything that was useful at that time and publish useful information particularly around mold because it could have spearheaded this decades earlier absolutely it's a real shame and. Really, it's so easy to follow up on because it was so well documented. Yeah. And the um, evidence of aberrant activation of the immune system, it was all documented. It's, uh, it's in the medical charts. 
it's in books, it's in newspapers. Mm. So really, it was just a simple matter of putting this immune activation together with the circumstantial evidence of sick buildings. And then there you have it, the mystery is solved. Right. And then you can develop prospective studies to look at, at buildings and, and, and the like. But yeah, it was an opportunity missed. At the uh, 2019 uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida Mold Congress, you talked about what they knew about the mold. They were aware. So what prevented them from proceeding? And uh, you asked, was it ego? Was it territorialism? What is it? Maybe it's it's money. I mean, I, I spoke with one person in the government in 2019, you know, high high ranking person who said to me, this is a one trillion dollar problem. And of course, that was before a trillion dollars seemed like a lot of money you know, after the pandemic and you know, just giving out trillions after trillions. You know, that kind of is a numb, you know, numbing. But in, in 2019, you know, a trillion dollars seemed like a lot. We're talking about losses. We're talking about fixing at least 50 percent of the buildings in the United States. We're talking about, you know, healthcare adjustments and policy changes. But imagine if most chronic fatigue syndrome comes from chronic exposure to mold. Imagine if most irritable bowel syndrome comes from chronic exposure to indoor mold. Imagine if most fibromyalgia comes from chronic exposure to indoor mold. And, and we, we accept that in the general population of doctors, not just the ones that are doing mold-based illness evaluations and, and research, but we all became aware of that. That's a better way of saying it. We all became aware of that. You know, we could essentially prevent the vast majority of these illnesses and and all the money that goes into evaluating these patients and the, the specialists that they have to see and the medicines that they're given that that don't treat the root cause. And I mean, imagine how much money we could save and how much human suffering we could save if if we just took this a little more seriously. Absolutely. It's such an opportunity lost. And uh, I submit that, yeah, there's ego, there's territorialism, there's competition for power, influence. Uh, there's a lot at stake here. But there's something even more interesting that I already alluded to, and that's the procedural error, where the academic mind demands the answers before they can develop the answers. Right. We, we need the, something in the literature before we can look into it. It's a catch-22. Well, and the burden of proof in medicine is probably higher than in most of the other sciences. I mean, that may not be true in physics, where they, they demand a five sigma uh, result before they'll accept a new change to their current theories. But, you know, within medicine, because, because we've had problems like thalidomide, for instance, where, you know, thalidomide is a, a drug that we gave to, to pregnant women in the 50s. It was amazing, you know, it helped them get rid of their nausea and whatnot. But then their kids started being born without arms and or legs. And that was a real problem. And so as a result of that and some other things, you know, medicine is very slow to change. And there are certain channels and there are certain kind of studies that they want done. And some of those studies ethically can't be done in humans when it comes to mold. Um, and, and some of the studies that we could do require millions of dollars. So it really has to be funded by big pharma or by universities. And big pharma also funds the universities. And big pharma doesn't have any incentive 
I'm not criticizing them, but they, if you look at it objectively, they don't have any incentive to, you know, for, for you to, to cure somebody's fibromyalgia before it starts. And that sounds evil. And, and I don't, again, I don't intend to infer that people are evil, but I do know that people make decisions that sacrifice other people's health when money is available. And there, there is, there is, decades of, of evidence that that's true. You look at the tobacco industry, you look at radium usage in the 40s, look at coal mines, look at um, asbestos. I mean, you, you all see in every one of those instances, you see that the medical knowledge was there 40 years before there was general acceptance, you know, amongst everybody. 40 years. Yeah, I wanted to understand this problem. So I spent a lot of time going to the opposition doctors in fact, I spend a lot of time going to the Truckee uh, Tall Horse Hospital and asking them, what's going on here? Why can't we proceed with this thing? And amazingly, they have some very good arguments for why they are so resistant. Mm. And it all makes sense. There is so much fraud, charlatanism, opportunist, snake oil. There's so much deception going on out there that they have to be extremely resistant to anything that isn't totally proven. So. Yeah. That's why they act the way they do. I, I get that, and, and and that is correct. But but there are now hundreds of studies that show that exposure to indoor mold, whether it's visible mold or whether it's a uh, um, uh, mold that you can smell, or even dampness caused by condensation on the windowsill during, say, winter time, that there's an increase in multi-system symptoms. Uh, in people. So it's not just runny noses and maybe sore throats, but it's, you know, it's respiratory issues, it's neurological issues, it's abdominal issues, you know, gastrointestinal, it's neurological, it, and it's, it's, it's in the brain, and it's also peripherally, there is the evidence is stacked dermatological, you know, musculoskeletal, the evidence is stacked, and it's out there. And it's in the medical literature. But unfortunately, it's probably in literature that most doctors don't read. I mean, a lot of doctors don't read environmental health perspectives. It's an, ex it's an excellent journal, but it's really geared more toward environmental doctors. And if you're not an environmental doctor, you're not going to read any of those things. Well, so, some of the doctors who saw the original chronic fatigue syndrome cluster, the Truckee teachers, they are still there at Tall Force Hospital. The very wow. same people. Wow. And I've made contact with them. And it turns out that several of them have become mold believers. Good. So they accept it. And they've even treated people for mold and written prescriptions for them to get out of their moldy situation. Right. But they can't officially accept it or act on this in a public way because mm -hmm. nobody has approached the hospital to explain the situation in a compelling official manner. That's interesting. And again, you know, the data, you know, a, a colleague and I, uh, Ming Dooley, uh, summarized the data from 2011 to 2018. We looked at every published epidemiological article throughout the world, 278,000 or 273,000 subjects. Uh, from it was 116 studies, we could only find 114 of them. But we summarized that and we found that 98.2% of these studies supported what we're talking about. And we broke it down and looked at individual systems 
And, and it's overwhelming. It was like 24 out of 24 articles that looked at general symptoms like chronic fatigue or uh, headaches or sleep problems, sleep issues. 24 out of 24 supported symptoms in these systems. And when we looked at uh, cognitive, there were 16 out of 16 that actually looked at cognitive issues that found that there was a correlation between being in, in a water damaged building and having cognitive issues. And I can go on and on. The, again, the data is there, um, but there's still, and, and certainly amongst physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs that actually are trained and, and treated and treat patients with this illness or with mold-based illnesses, a broader thing, there, I, I don't think that there's any uh, disagreement at all that, that mold and chronic indoor mold exposure can cause these kind of problems. It's really just the people that don't read that literature and don't treat those patients knowingly because those patients are coming into their office probably on a daily basis and, and they're treating them for other things, but they just, they just don't know. And it's, it's very unfortunate. Well, the irony here is that the uh, people at Tall Forest Hospital are very open-minded. I mean, these are great people and they are totally willing to embrace this, to accept it, but not from patients and not from low-level doctors. They need to hear it from top researchers from Stanford or from Harvard or some major, major, or the CDC, NIH, right. and until then, they can't officially act on it. Right. Well, the CDC in 2012 published a, an article through NIOSH, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, um, where they evaluated two different high schools. One was in, um, one was in Cincinnati, the other was in uh, New Orleans. And it was right, they did the data or collected the data right before Katrina. And then they were going to come back to New Orleans after Katrina to get a control high school, but they couldn't find one because Katrina had caused so much water damage in so many places. So they ended up using a high school in, in, um, in Cincinnati. And the one in Cincinnati had minimal water damage. The one in, in Louisiana had, you know, tremendous amount of water damage. This is an excellent report. And they they did better testing and, and more methods of testing than any other report that I've ever seen. So they did they did ERMIs and they did bulk samples and they did they had in uh, environmental experts come in and evaluate the buildings. They look looking for signs of water damage and visible mold and musty smell. I mean they really did a thorough evaluation of both of these buildings. And then they evaluated uh, between the two is I think it was 205 different staff members. And what they found, they were looking at 22 different symptoms in four different systems. And they found that 18 of the 22 symptoms were elevated or were in more people percentage wise at a statistically significant level at the water damaged uh, high school in Louisiana. And they did visual contrast sensitivity testing. And they found that, that the people that had been water damaged, that they, were, that they had decreased visual contrast sensitivity in all five columns, statistically significant. That's the last thing I've heard from the CDC in 2012. It's, it's, all, it's, it's almost like, and I don't know this to be fact, but it's almost like someone's told them 
no more study of this, no more publications of this. You, you can't say anything else. In their own guidance documents, they say that if you see mold or you smell mold, it has to be remediated. And that most of the time you don't even need commercial testing, that it needs to be remediated. And the EPA goes on to describe how that remediation should occur. And basically the, the protective gear that you're supposed to wear is consistent with a hazmat suit. So, so nobody is saying that it's safe, but unfortunately, these governmental agencies are not going farther and they're not funding studies and they're not saying anything about mold. And that's a question we need to ask, like, why? Because they're aware of, of these problems. And yet it doesn't appear as though they are um, prioritizing it. And I'll just say one last thing. I think in that 2019 talk that I alluded to, I think it was then, uh, or it might've been in 2018, I did a summary of some of the funds that the NIH was using, you know, to study chronic fatigue syndrome, to study IBS, to study just like four or five of the symptoms that we see chronically in people that are exposed with mold. And I totaled it to like $5.1 billion that they were doing on research, $5.1 billion, but it wasn't on mold. It was on, you know, what's causing this, but it wasn't on mold. You know, what, why are these people getting sick? Why can't we fix it? What's actually the underlying mechanism to it? And yet the, the, the literature is out there that show a fairly obvious link. And so why don't we do some prospective studies on that and see if people who were in chronic mold exposure that we know about are developing these illnesses. It seems to me like it's a better use of the money, but yeah, as, as you say, it's a can of worms that they know about, but they don't want to open. And and there's got to be a reason why it's not being open. Um, but I, I don't know what that reason is. But well, I, actually, I, I uh, at the 2019 uh, Mold Congress, I talked about that where I had fully briefed Dr. Elizabeth Unger of the Center for Disease Control on the toxic mold situation and why the um, the syndrome had hit a point of confusion that we can't get past. And she said, the problem is just too complicated. It's too variable. We don't have good testing. We don't have good um, studies already in the literature that compel people to come back. So it's just too much of a hassle. And I felt that Dr. Unger really wanted to follow up, that she would have liked to, because it's a fascinating thing. But uh, I get the sense that she went back to Atlanta and was told, don't go there. And that's my suspicion. Again, I can't document it, but I suspect that there are directions from higher ups that, uh, you know, we're not going to investigate this. That, that's my suspicion. But again, I can't substantiate that. So even without trying to hold people accountable, just, uh, okay, let's let bygones be bygones. Uh, consider the past was all just one big mistake. There's still no reason why we can't analyze the documents that the chronic fatigue syndrome was developed on and make sense of this whole thing. Proceed from there. I agree. You're, you're preaching to the choir, Eric. Okay, well, uh, what's going on with Sirs X? Because I don't know much about it. So Sirs X is, a, is an organization primarily dedicated to bringing education to the masses and uh, and and to help 
create uh, an organized, systematized way of evaluating people who have mold for medical reasons, evaluating their homes and, and office buildings, um, and remediating them. You know, one of the problems that we see throughout the country is, is that in every one of these industries, there's a great variation in diagnostic methods, in treatment methods. If you're evaluating houses, you know, as a mold tester, there's a great deal of variation in how that's done. Um, and if, if you're a remediator, there's a great deal of variation in how that's done. And the knowledge base needs to be kind of, as, as far as I'm concerned, it needs to be better summarized and taught so that there's some consistency. You know, if, if you're not ill, if you don't have a genetic predisposition, for instance, to develop SIRS, and you find mold in your house, certain levels of remediation are probably going to be okay for you regardless. But if you have this genetic predisposition, and that's 25% of the population, those methods of remediation are and, and cleaning afterwards are not sufficient. Some methods of... of uh, evaluating your home and looking for mold are not sufficient. And there's also variation, like I said, in how people are treated. The, the method that I use is fairly inexpensive and I have tremendous results. There are other methods that cost tens of thousands of dollars a year that maybe not are as, as effective. And so we need to evaluate these things. We need to, to put them head to head and, and see what's the best. Um, we need to, um, so, so we need to develop that data. We also need to just educate people that that moldy buildings cause more than runny noses and can cause people to be chronically ill and even debilitatingly ill for for lifetimes. And the number one treatment is you have to clean that environment or remediate and clean afterwards that environment properly. And again, with this, all this variability, you get families that are very sick and they get a remediator that isn't really aware of how serious the situation is. They may do a shoddy job, charge $40,000, dollars $60,000, people pay for that out of cash, and then they go back into their building and they can't tolerate it because it wasn't done right or it wasn't cleaned right. I mean, we have to get rid of that. So CERZAX is trying to develop standards in all of these industries that, that people can follow. And we're trying to provide ground level information for, if you're a doctor, you, know, you probably already know all the scientific terms, but you may not know anything about building science. And if you're a patient, you may not know anything about the medical terms or about building science. You know? And so we're trying to, to create and centralize information at a at a very um, fundamental level, and then to build it up so that if you want to learn more and more and more, you can become quite expert at it. And of course, a lot of our patients know more than quite a few of our doctors do about these subjects, as I'm sure you are aware. Yeah, uh, people are confused about my relationship with Dr. Shoemaker because I've been slamming him pretty hard lately, and I'd like to explain what that is and get your take on it. Um, up until he wrote from um, the late 90s until he wrote Desperation Medicine, he would refer to each particular specific problem by what it was, fisteria, ciguatoxin, um, Lyme disease. You know, it was all its, in its own niche. And he developed this unifying concept of biotoxin illness. So from 2001 until 2010, it was biotoxin illness. And then he 
switched to SIRS. Mm -hmm. So we got a lot of publicity over SIRS, and that was proceeding. And then in 2019, SIRS went to SIRS X. So what's what's the X? So SIRS X is probably the X is a homage to uh, to SpaceX. And uh, it's just to differentiate it from other things. Surviving Mold and, and SIRSX actually work together on a lot of projects, but they're completely separate entities. Um, so we, like I said, we, we work together with each other to try and, and propel the knowledge and, and uh, uh, education of all these different industries. SIRSX is solely determined to create educational materials and to uh, to educate not just physicians, but also the indoor environmental professionals and the patients and legal people. And eventually we'd like to, to, to branch out into insurance companies and, and other places everywhere that, you know, architects, uh, contractors, our, our goal is to, is to take the information that's out there and condense it in a way that it is, um, uh, that, that one can take it in and, and actually learn from it. And we believe that at some point in time, there's going to be an actual explosion. Like if you've seen Oppenheimer, you know, the bomb goes off and once it goes off, everything changes. We believe that's happening. And, and you know, your podcast and other people's podcasts and books and things, the awareness is coming. And at some point, we believe we're going to reach a tipping point where this thing, is, you know, so many people are going to know about this, that that efforts that may have been made, that may have been uh, intentional to slow down the progress of knowledge and education, if there are such things, that those things can no longer hold it back. And we're trying to have a, a centralized place where all that knowledge is, where if somebody is, is just now learning about it, they can come and get uh, peer-reviewed, published understanding of what this illness is and, and you know, come up to speed within a few days or a couple of weeks or a few months, you know, to have the ability to have mentorship as you're learning how to treat people with these illnesses and, and to understand the protocols of how you treat and why you do this and why you do that. So, so that's really what we're about is just trying to have that information centralized in one place for all the industries so that when that explosion occurs, and I don't think we're that far from it, uh, that people will have a trusted place that they can come and get all that information. Okay, that's yeah, I was getting lost with all the, the the name changes. This was kind yeah. of confusing to me. Right. And so you know that MECFS, mild encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, has turned into a huge global debate. There are institutes and organizations and advocates all over the world fighting over this MECFS construct, and they are completely unaware of the relationship between chronic fatigue syndrome and toxic mold. Right. So through the course of all these different name changes, the CFS thing got a little bit left behind. Right. And in, in the books where it says that chronic fatigue syndrome is a misdiagnosis of SIRS, well, that's kind of confusing because if toxic mold was the very clue that started chronic fatigue syndrome, there's an obvious relationship here. It's not really a misdiagnosis. Toxic mold is what chronic fatigue syndrome was coined to find. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And, and I think it's, it's tragic, you know, in the chronic fatigue community, chronic fatigue syndrome community, the, like the name changes, like you're saying, I think that 
it, it just it, it it brings confusion. And and you, I, I assume you know, but there are still physicians that don't believe that chronic fatigue syndrome even exists. There are still physicians that believe that fibromyalgia doesn't exist, that it's not a real entity. And of course, there are physicians that believe that mold can't cause this kind of illness. But the data is overwhelming. The, the problem is they, they, generally speaking, haven't taken the time to evaluate the data you know, from all its various sources and see that the, the data is overwhelming. Well, actually, as a prototype for chronic fatigue syndrome, I never had that problem with doctors telling me, well, I don't believe in chronic fatigue syndrome because I could hold up the uh, test results showing immune abnormalities and go, you don't believe in test results? This is what the syndrome was for. You are not at liberty to disbelieve in your own science. <laughs> That's in- oh, they are. They're, 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 it's just called putting your head in the sand. Yeah, it's just so. a statement of ignorance. It happens. And, you know, I'm, I'm in my early 60s. I've been practicing medicine at this point for over 30 years. And, and I know that a number of people that are my age are not interested in learning a whole new illness and a whole new, they, they're not interested in learning building science. And they're not interested in learning new facts about, about fungi and, and microbiology. And they're, they're looking at the, at the end. And so I, I don't spend a lot of time talking to them. I mean, I, I will, particularly if they're interested, I will, I, will, I will give them all day long and tell them about this illness if they show the interest. But it's really the newer people, the people that are coming out of medical schools and, and uh, osteopathic schools and the nurse practitioners, the people that, that have a better understanding of the innate immune system than my generation did. So we didn't know that much about it when I went through school in 85 to 89 um, and, and people that have an open mind and they're the people that they, they, they get this just like that. They, they see it and they see it every day in their practices. And, and that's, to me, that's the hope for the future is this younger generation that have graduated schools in the last 10, 15 years. And they've seen these problems and they've seen that, you know, giving somebody Lyrica, not, not to call out any particular big pharma company, but to, to give somebody Lyrica for their fibromyalgia doesn't, doesn't cut it. I mean, it may help them with their, with their pain. It may help them with their fatigue, but it doesn't fix anything. And, and what we see is if you properly treat mold, it fixes things that are thought to be unfixable. Okay, well, up until the 2019 Mold Congress, uh, SIRS was pretty much synonymous, even though all these other factors were mentioned, it was becoming extremely well-known as synonymous with mold illness. And then at the Mold Congress, Dr. Shoemaker unleashed with his genie uh, findings which indicated that uh, there were other factors, such as actinomycetes. So the question is, how much of SIRS is actinomycetes and how much is mold? Good question. And, and Eric, just to kind of clarify that, I can tell you that going back to 2010, when well, 2009, I first started and then bled into 2010, you know, Dr. Shoemaker has always said mold, bacteria, and actino. Uh, my seeds, which now we say actinobacteria just because it's a, a larger group of ac- actinos. He's, he's always said that. Um, and what the genie told us was it helped, helped kind of uh, show that some people are reacting more to actinobacteria. Some people are, are reacting more to mycotoxins. Some people are reacting more to bacteria. And, and that's what the genie studies show. You know, those numbers are, are still fairly small. 
And, and so I, I'm just waiting for more data. We're collecting more data. We're looking at treatment protocols for people that are being exposed to actinobacteria, but maybe not to excess levels of mold. And we're, we're working on that to see if we can differentiate that better. But in the same, in the same vein, I mean, SIRS, as long as I've been involved, um, has always meant not just uh, mold, although it is, like you said, it's, it's pri primarily thought of that way, but it's always, as long as I've been involved, included Lyme disease and fisteria and ciguatera and uh, brown recluse spider bites, or I'm, I'm sorry, recluse spider bites um, and, and cyanobacteria. Because, because exposure to those various things, if you have the appropriate genetic predisposition, creates a syndrome that looks almost indistinguishable from what happens to people that are in chronic exposure to the interiors of water damaged buildings or mold bacteria and actinomyces. So, so they're, they're all kind of the same pathway. And that may sound confusing, but, but let me give you an, an analogy of that. When I was in medical school, I said, you know, the common cold is so common. How come we don't have uh, a, a vaccine for the common cold? And the answer was, well, there's about 50 different viruses that cause the common cold. And so you would have to make a vaccine for all of those. And of course, the common cold is relatively innocuous. So there's not a, a sufficient reason to do that. And I, I thought about that. And it's like, how is it that 50 different viruses, I don't have that many fingers, I'm five. You know, how is it that 50 different viruses can cause the same kind of symptoms? And the answer is because because the symptoms are actually coming from the innate immune system and from the cytokines that are being overproduced. And so that's what we think is happening in, in SIRS is that regardless of what the trigger is, whether it's mold or bacteria or actinobacteria, or whether it's, uh, uh, whether it's from a toxin or whether it's from an inflammogenic particle of a mold or a bacteria or an actinobacteria or whatever it is, we're still defining that. Um, when the body recognizes that, it creates an immune response. Now, there's probably a toxic portion to it also. So I, I don't want you to think like, oh, no, there's no toxin part of it at all. There probably is. And there are two sides of the same coin, you know, the, the toxic and the inflammatory processes. But the inflammatory processes are easier for us to define because we already have a bunch of biomarkers that show that there's an inflammatory abnormality going on. And, and so that's, that's how I've kind of moved into that area. There are other people in the country that look more at the toxic portion of it. And, and I don't discredit what they're, they're saying. I, I'm just saying it's a different part of the same process. And I'm studying this one because I have biomarkers that, that delineate that. That was a well, long Dr. Shoemaker was very clear in his 2000 book, 2001 book, Desperation Medicine, that the common denominator was that structure equals function. And then all these different substances from Lyme disease, from toxic mold, from ciguatera, they all had in common this ion dipole. They were an ionophore toxin. And this yeah. had the same exact effect on the immune system. And that's what bound all these different things together. Yeah, they're definitely, like I said, is, is a toxic effect. But there is also an immune system effect. And we see that because, you know, I've seen 2,000 patients at this point Every single one of them that I would say has SIRS uh, either has a low level of VIP or a low level of MSH 
or a low level above. And these are chemicals that modulate the immune system in a, in a way that brings it back to normal instead of being elevated and ramped up. And they all have an elevated TGF beta one or an elevated MMP9 or an elevated C4A or multiples of those. So we know the, the immune system is, is part of the, the process also. So I don't discount what you're talking about, you know, that there's a toxic basis, but there's also an immune system basis. And it's very difficult for us to find the toxins that we don't have great tests for that. Um, we have urine mycotoxin testing, but the, those tests have some, some issues with them. We don't have really good blood or nasal secretion toxin uh, testing, but we have excellent testing that can show us what's going on in the immune system. And, and that's why there's more talk about the immune system from, from our group or groups than there are from then about toxins. But yeah, it's still the understanding is that there's some uh, biological molecule out there. It could be toxin, it could be inflammatory, it could be a combination of them. It could be whole spores, much more likely it's fragments of spores. Well, the, the common theme of, of SIRS from uh, the time that Dr. Shoemaker created that construct up until SIRS-X, was that it was an ionophore toxin that it had to have this structure. All of his uh, ideas were bound around this one effect of an ionophore. He called it rise of the ionophores. Mm -hmm. So the question for me is, when uh, he kind of moved from this other set of factors that he'd been implicating into actinomycetes, we went from fungi to a bacteria. So is it still the same ionophore toxin? Yeah, yeah. I, I, the the uh, the the bad guys haven't changed. I mean, we're still looking at moles, bacteria, and uh, actinomyces. Same thing we were looking at back in 2010. Um, I, I don't. I can't say what we were looking at before then because I I was becoming you know who I am today in you know, 2009 2010. But you know, and I, I've read Dr. Shoemaker's previous literature. I think what it shows, Eric, is not that he is he's moved away from ionophores, uh, but more that there's a there's a an understanding of that yes, there are ionophores and there's also inflammatory things that are going on. And it's just much easier to study the inflammatory things than it is the ionophores. But I, I don't think he's ever moved away from that. And I don't think he's ever moved away from uh the fact that there are multiple potential things that can happen in a water damaged building, and we really don't know which one it is. The genie is the first study that gave us a clue and showed that maybe it's more actinomycetes than, than mold, and maybe more bacteria and the endotoxins that come from, from that than mold, but it doesn't really matter because they're all in the water damaged building. And so, uh, you know, the treatment remains the same, and we're just trying to flesh out more of what's actually going on side in the human body with the limited you know, research resources that we have. But I, I don't think that he has strayed at all from what he was saying 10, 15 years ago. It's just the research focus is a little bit different because we have the methods to do you know, that kind of research. Well, the um, engagement of Dr. Shoemaker and his group with the chronic fatigue syndrome, the Holmes chronic fatigue syndrome, that dropped off. So that leaves the CFS community in limbo because they don't know where they stand in terms of mold exposure. But uh, what I'm curious about is if SIRS, as it now stands, is the result of multiple exposures from many different factors, especially bacteria, 
since that became a more dominant feature of SIRS X, how does that affect legal cases, court cases, where people are trying to prove their illness on the basis of toxic mold exposure? And now SIRS X is saying, well, it's probably not primarily toxic mold. I, I do a fair amount of legal work, Eric, and, and in, I always talk about mold bacteria and actino bacteria and have from the very beginning. And I say that these are lumped together as mold. And I talk about toxins, inflammagens, and microbes, because we're still trying to figure out, is it, is it toxin? Probably is. Is it, is it uh, inflammagens, chemicals that can cause inflammation? It probably is. And by the way, toxins are inflammogenic too, because your body recognizes them as being foreign and starts the inflammatory process. And is it whole microbes? You know, is it a whole mold or a whole bacteria or a whole actino? Or is it maybe little fragments of them that have beta-glucans on them or mycotoxins on them? You know, we don't really know. What we do know is that for every spore that you find on spore trap testing, when you, when you look at a, a house that has elevated levels of mold, for every spore that you find, there's somewhere between 320 and 514 fragments. And those fragments have the ability to go in your nose or through your mouth down towards your lungs much more deeply than spores or bacteria or actinobacteria by themselves can. So likely the problem is still going to be that it's the fragments. The fragments are floating around in the dust. The fragments have chemicals that trigger the, inf the inflammation and the fragments have sometimes have, have mycotoxins too. So the, the thinking really hasn't changed. It's just where the research dollars are going. And maybe actinobacteria is a bigger problem than mold. Maybe bacteria is and, and it's endotoxin than molds themselves. But to me, it's it, that question is completely unrelated because it's the real problem is water damaged buildings. And when you have water damaged buildings, they promote- well, Wait a minute, it, it may have been water damaged buildings at one point, but if you include ciguatera, ciguatoxin poisoning, you know, that's eating fish down in the Caribbean, the toxic mm -hmm. fish, and people stay sick for right. years uh, if they don't die. So I, that's I, a chronic problem from a fish, which has nothing to do with sick buildings. Understood. And, and I'm just, you had asked about litigation. And so I'm talking about litigation because I don't usually get litigation over, you know, I went to the Bahamas and, and I ate some some piscivorous reef fish and, and I got sick. So within litigation, to me, it, it doesn't really make a difference. If the, if the testing shows that there's actinobacteria or mold or um, uh, bacteria, you know, I know that that demonstrates it's a water damaged building, but you're absolutely right. I, I do believe that toxins are a part of it. We just don't have the same kind of resources to uh, the same kind of testing availability and whatnot to do the same kind of work with toxins as we do with the, the immune system. But I, I don't well, think- how, how, how do you rule out whether or not you ate a bad fish or were bitten by a brown recluse spider? Well, history is your primary uh, one. But the truth is when you look at, when you look at LD50s, and LD50 is the lethal dose to 50% of say mice that you give a particular kind of toxin to. Almost always, the lowest LD50s or the most lethal doses come from inhalation. The second most usually is direct contact, like somebody put it on your skin. And the third most is from ingestion. 
So ingestion is, is the least likely cause of a problem. And usually if there's a significant amount of mold on something, you'll see it. Now, of course, if you're talking about ciguatera, that's a whole different story. But if you're, if you're talking about mold, moldy food can be an issue. And there certainly are illnesses that are shown when if you eat a considerable amount of moldy food, that it can cause some really severe problems like ATA. That was, uh, was uh, a, uh, a, ah, I forget, ATA. Anyway, people were eating a lot of T2 toxin that was on, on grain in Russia. And they got very sick and some died. And they started bleeding out and having multi-system problems. So, so nobody is discounting toxins. We just don't have the resources you, the testing methods to really be able to do the kind of studies where we can talk a lot about that. What Genie does is it looks at what your cells are actually doing, what chemicals your cells are making, uh, and, and try, and then we try and work backwards to figure out well, what was the stimulus that caused that. And, and so that's where that information came from. But I, I think a lot more work has to be done before I think you can say, you know, this was an actinobacteria problem, you know, and meet a legal sense to that. If uh, somebody specifies uh, particular exposures being the driving force in their illness, be it ciguatera or actinomycetes or uh, T2 toxins, do you then direct them to uh, describe their illness as I have toxic mold SIRS, I have two T2 SIRS, or I have ciguatoxin SIRS? We, we do have different designations for those. So if we believe that the problem came from water damaged buildings, it's SIRS-WDB. If we think it's from Lyme disease, like that was the initial trigger, it's SIRS-PLS or post-Lyme syndrome. Um, and we have one for ciguatera and whatnot. And it, but what we probably need is one from multiple causes because you know, just because you developed your SIRS as a result of Lyme disease doesn't mean that a water damaged building wasn't in your in your past or even in your present also that could be making things worse. Well, as you brought up in the beginning, stachybotrys is my primary interest since that's the one that started chronic fatigue syndrome. So I hope that uh, we'll have a stachybotrys SIRS. There may be, there may be, you know, probably the, the thing that inhibits us the most is just, we don't have the funds, you know, we're, we're not a major university. Uh, and I say we, I mean, the, the, the community that's doing research, we don't have NIH grants, we don't have uh, CDC grants, you know, where we could actually do some of the molecular biological studies that we need to do, uh, or, or possibly even animal studies. I don't know that we need to do animal studies because a lot of those have already been done. But we just don't have access to the kind of money that is necessary to flesh this out and answer some of the questions that you're asking better, to develop a better test uh, to look for mycotoxins in your blood, for instance. I mean, urine is a, is a waste product. And so it's already been filtered by the, by the kidney and by the liver. What if we could just draw your blood and, and find 150 different mycotoxins? That would be an extremely useful test for research. But unfortunately, we just don't have that available to us. Well, then you should come with me to Stanford and talk to the Open Medicine Foundation, because if you get them to work on this, if to admit, to connect the chronic fatigue syndrome has something to do with toxic mold, they've got millions of dollars in donations. I would be happy to do that with you, Eric. Excellent. Sounds like a plan. Let's do it. Okay. So you guys are awful quiet. Do you have any questions? I think you did a great job at covering everything, Eric. Um, you know, you're you're most well versed in uh, CFS source history, so we really wanted you to 
to own the conversation and you did a great job. Thanks again, Dr. McMahon. It was such a pleasure having you on the show and we we will definitely follow up with you in terms of partnering um, and getting the donations that you guys need. Uh, maybe we can do some research collaboratively with Exposing Mold as well. Awesome. We would love to do that. Um, but yeah, if there's anything else, um, are you currently serving any more patients? Are you like, how are people working with you now in what capacity? Yes, I, I still have a practice. I it's a, It takes about four months to get in to see me because I'm, I'm just busy, but I have a nurse practitioner who works with me also, who's been working with me for a couple of years and she's well-versed and we discuss all our patients. And, and so uh, she's, she's available much more quickly. Um, should I, should I give you my, uh, my phone number and my email address or not email, but yeah, the email to, to reach my office. Yeah, sure. So our audience members can go ahead and reach out if they'd like to. Okay. So the phone number uh, is 575-627-5571. And that'll, that'll connect you probably with Almitra and she's absolutely wonderful. And you'll say, wow, she was awesome and, and, and knowledgeable and, and very, very capable. Um, and, and then if you want to reach us by email, it's WWHC. So, so my clinic is called Whole World Health Clinic and that's whole with a W, not with an H. But whole, uh, WWHC info, I-N-F-O at wholeworldhealthcare.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Eric. Go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, I, I am just super impressed with our local hospitals here at Lake Tahoe, Tall Forest Hospital. And I found that they're actually interested in this kind of thing. And I feel that if we approach them with good research, something that they can sink their teeth into, they will actually follow up on it. Well, you are fortunate, Eric. I'll tell you, my own local hospital used to uh, used to run like all the lab tests for me. And then after about three or four years, they said, we're not going to do these anymore because we don't make enough money off these tests. So I, I have to, you know, scratch and 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 try and find ways to 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 get the objective testing for my patients. So you're blessed. And uh, I, I would be more than happy to sit down with them too. Excellent. Awesome. Collaboration is definitely what we need in this um, ecosystem. I guess you can say it's always seems to be everyone in their own beliefs and their own ideas, but I think we all need to work together to move right. the needles. Sounds, yeah. sounds exciting. Can't we all just get along? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not I sure. Mean, we're, we're fighting an enemy that is, is vast, you know, and I'm not, just, I, I mean, I believe that there have been some people, I'm not going to say who, I'm not going to give any suggestions of who they are, but who would like to see this, this illness stay in the dark and, and is more than happy to label the people that, that do this kind of work as, you know, fringe or whatnot. And, and, and I've gone up against the, the medical experts, you know, for the defense that say there is no you know, data in the in the meta, in the relevant medical or scientific literature that supports what Dr. McMahon has to say. The actual truth is there is almost no data in this in the relevant scientific and medical literature that supports what the defense experts have to say. It is predominantly, and I mean well over 95% of the of the published articles support, you know, the work that Dr. Shoemaker has said. Or, or what I'm saying, well over 95%. But 
these people come in and they say other things so that they can win a court case. So I would call that someone who's trying to keep this in the dark. And there may be larger groups. But eventually, if we work together, we will push this into the light where nobody can say, oh, no, that's not real. Because because they do. Uh, most people out of ignorance. And and what I what I do hate to see is when people are fighting against each other. You know, this group, like you're saying, Alicia, this group against this group against this group. It's like, no, we need to get along. We need to we need to come together and figure out what we agree on. And, and then the things that we disagree on. We need to test them against each other and find out what's best. We may find out that for certain patients, this is the best way to do it. And for certain other patients, this is the best way to do it. Or we may find that one method is superior to the other, regardless. You know, as scientists, we're not supposed to have any skin in that game. We're supposed to figure out what is the best way to do it. And, and we have to work together to do that. And, and we, we can't allow anyone or anything to fragment us in that in that uh, that that quest for the truth and you know what is really going on and how do how do we diagnose it and how do we fix it the the best way that, yeah. that that's who i am i agree and you know i do have a few questions now that i think about it um, what are your thoughts around um you know you go on social media you see all these like functional medicine doctors coming up and trying to take over the mold um, area, I guess you can say. And um, it seems like a lot of them are adding in emotional trauma and stress, and they're really elevating that more over anything. What are your thoughts regarding that as a as a trained medical doctor? Well, I'll start with the emotional trauma and stress. I, I do think there's a place for that as an adjunct therapy for some of these people. I do not see it as the primary therapy. The primary therapy is number one, make the correct diagnosis. And there are correct peer-reviewed published ways to make the diagnosis. And there are other ways that people do that are easier, but they're not accurate and they're not going to hold up in court. So, so I make the diagnosis the correct way and, and then treat people the, the correct way. And again, that, that follows peer-reviewed published science. And, and so I would say to those people, you know, this particular supplement that, that you think is great, do some studies, okay? Keep track of your data, you know, with your patients that you've used it with and show that it actually causes an improvement rather than just say it because your opinion is just opinion. My opinion is just opinion, except I've got data that I've been collecting for 14 years or nearly 14 years that actually supports my opinions. And, and I don't see that from a group of people. And again, I'm not interested in pointing pointing fingers at anyone. I'm interested in everybody coming up and 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 solving this problem together. And and the way you do that, the way you convince medical doctors is is you collect data. And and the data has to be overwhelming. And it has to be palatable and it has to be plausible and it has to be put in a format and a place where they're going to read it. So that's what I'm trying to do. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that answer. Um, another question I have is, um, you know, Shoemaker has discussed the effectiveness rate of his protocol being at around 40%. Um, so does Source X ever discuss or prescribe mold avoidance for your hard to treat patients? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think every patient needs, needs uh, mold avoidance. I mean, that's the number one therapy. 
some patients don't need it as severely as others. You know, I mean, Eric has been a champion for uh, extreme avoidance and some of my patients need that. And, and I will tell them, you know, you need, you are sick, you are this sick and you have to do this. And until you do something like this, you're not going to get any better. So um, since Eric is sort of the proprietor of mold avoidance, will he then be uh, invited to future X conferences to discuss his um, findings and avoidance? Well, why not? I, and I don't know that Eric is, is the, 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 uh, the father of mold avoidance, but he definitely is the father of, you know, more extreme mold avoidance and, and, and how critical mold avoidance is. And, and I, I honor you for that, Eric. You know, you also were the person who figured out that some people do much better at high elevation. And that's something that I teach in my practice, you know, that if you have the resources and you're willing to relocate, you should check it out at the beach. You should check it out in the Rockies, not in Denver, but in the Rockies, you know, 8,000 feet or higher. And you should check it out in the high desert and see where you personally feel the best. And then consider you know, relocating to a region like that. Absolutely. Well, actually, I picked a really bad name. When I was talking to Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson and proposed this strategy, I, I needed a name really quickly. And I said, just, I, I want to devise a strategy of extreme avoidance. And I wasn't talking about living in a tent in the desert. What I meant was, I just want to get clear so that I can learn my own responses to mold and then come back to town and make educated decisions about how much of this I want to tolerate. So it's really a way to maneuver my way around source points and mold plumes. And as you can see, I go to Florida, I go to symposiums, I go to Phoenix, I go to these hotels. I'm not you know, stuck out in the middle of nowhere, uh, living under extreme harsh conditions. I'm in the house right now. So uh, extreme avoidance has been a little bit misconstrued to think that I'm doing the most horrific things imaginable when actually it's what I do so I don't have to resort to living out in the desert. Fair enough. Well, you should come to Surzax and, and tell us about that. Now, our next meeting will be in May May of 2024 in Frisco, Texas, in a, in a newly built hotel. We always evaluate the hotels first and send an IEP and do sampling and whatnot to make sure that it's as healthy as it can possibly be before you sign a contract 12 to 15 months before the meeting actually happens. But Fantastic. Yeah, Glad to be there. That That is, a, I'm going to write your name down and, and give it to the people that make those decisions. That's great. I think we need to reunite Eric Johnson and Shoemaker and you guys, the, the old clan back together and, and work together. I mean, we, we really need to work on this together because as you know, as much as we know, this is a growing problem. It's extremely scary. Um, and imagine what the subsequent generations are going to be dealing with if we're not working together on this. It's it's going to be extremely damaging for families, as we're already seeing, um, but also for the economy. Um, and I don't know what the outlook of the U.S. is going to look like if we don't um, really nip this in the bud. So we do appreciate your presence here today. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. McMahon. We're not as scary as as everyone makes us out to be, right? <laughs> scary at all. I mean, we have we have the same goals at, at heart. We want to know as much about this illness as possible. We want to come up with the best treatment protocols as possible. We want to expand awareness 
I, I don't have any problem with that. I think we're all on the same page. We may do it in different ways and we may speak some different things and that's okay. I mean, intelligent uh, civil discourse is is how you is how different thinkers come together and solve problems. So I'm I'm all for that. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you. I just I just have one quick question because you totally shocked me with this this idea that Eric was not the father of mold avoidance because the strategy of mold avoidance was taken directly from his biological warfare training. So who is the inventor of mold avoidance then to you? So. When you say mold avoidance, and we're talking about environmental illnesses here, I mean, the, the standard of, of treating any environmental illness for 100, 150 years has been, number one, to avoid the thing that's triggering you. That's just a principle of medicine, which, you know, I know Eric's getting up there in years, but I don't think he's been around that long. So, so just avoiding the thing that makes you sick is, is, a, is a common principle in medicine. So, and, and I know that Dr. Shoemaker, as long as he's been doing this, said number one is mold avoidance. So I'm not saying he's the, the father of that. I'm just saying that within medicine, avoiding that which you know makes you sick is, is been a principle for a long, long time. Eric okay, I see what you're saying. Did. You're kind of describing the evolution of allergy of how, you know, when people notice that they're reacting to something to step away is what you're pointing out. Yeah, but not just allergy, it, it, toxicity too. So if, if you know that you're working in, in a selenium mine and you're starting to get selenium toxicity, you know that you need to avoid selenium. It's just, it's just a standard thing. Now, Eric has definitely been a champion of avoidance and, and he has come up with some different ways of doing avoidance that people may not have thought about or, or even if he didn't come up with them, he's championed them and brought them to our awareness, which helped thousands of people. So I think people what, might have what been my doing mold avoidance. contribution was is that stachybotrys was not known back in 1985. And when I devised this strategy of extreme avoidance, that it linked it to a specific agent. So that's where I sort of changed the landscape from being simple avoidance from various other things to something extremely specific, which was stachybotrys. Right. That's what I was just going to say, because I think maybe, you know, when people used to go get seaside air to improve their health for lung conditions, maybe that was a form of mold avoidance, but they didn't really know what they were avoiding. Sure. And in the 1850s and 60s, they used to send people to Arizona and New Mexico who had tuberculosis, or they called it back then consumption, because they wanted them to avoid certain exposures. So, so I don't know who actually, you know, came up with the idea of avoidance, but Eric, exactly, they they had no idea what they were trying to stay away from. Exactly. So, so extreme I, avoidance was a strategy to identify your specific triggers and contour your behaviors around those exact irritants. Exactly. So I honor you, Eric, as a champion for mold avoidance, uh, and 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 showing it. And, and Dr. Shoemaker is a champion for mold avoidance. Who came first? I don't know, but I know that avoidance of of your irritating substance has been around for quite some time. Then why do people get so upset when you tell them to to practice avoidance? Like, <laughs> do you <laughs> notice that? Because for us, that I mean, that's what we. I mean, Keely, Eric, and I were hypersensitive. We have to practice this with our life, right? 
And so we'll talk about this publicly and people get so mad with us when we talk about avoidance. So if this if yeah. this is such an old concept that has been dated, God knows, 200 years, as you said, 250 years, why do people get so triggered when you tell them to do it? Because you're telling them they have to change their lifestyle. You're telling them that they can't go to the water damaged movie theater and sit there for two and a half hours. You're telling them they may have to change the church that they attend because it's moldy. You're telling them that they can't send their, their son or their daughter to go sleep at somebody else's house. Or maybe they have to change the, the grocery store that they go to that they've been going to for 25 years. And, and you're, you're, you're making their world much, much smaller. But it is the most important advice that we give is you have to, you have to avoid the mold exposures. And if you don't, you're just going to make yourself sicker or you're going to minimize whatever uh, improvement that you might have had with the therapy that's being given because you're non-compliant with the most important thing. And I tell people when they come to my office, I say, if you get anything from what I say today is you will not get better or you will not get your, your optimal improvement if you can sit, continue to go into water damage buildings and get hits. You, you have to do this. And unfortunately, people will get somewhat better and then they'll they'll get some hits and they'll relapse and then they'll get somewhat better because we treat them again and they'll get hits and relapse. And maybe around the third time, they kind of figure out what I told them day one and what you, Eric, have been championing, championing for years is you have to stay out of these exposures. I absolutely agree with you. I actually use mold avoidance as a strategy so that if I go into a moldy place, like I recognize it immediately and I know what to do so that I don't get sick. Bingo. That, and, and we teach people that too. Not everybody, Keely, has the, that sensitivity where you can go into a building and notice it immediately. Some people, most people do. Yeah. Not, some people are masked still. Yeah, and they, they, don't exactly. know how to, they don't know how to do the strategy strategy to draw that out because anyone who practices strategic mold avoidance actually can turn that on intentionally. I, but there, there's a strategy. That. You'll have to teach me about that. I but would love to talk to you about that. I, I would, we probably won't do that today, but I would no. love to talk about that. Later. Uh, because, because I teach my patients to pay attention to what their body tells them. And some people within seconds are aware that it's, that it's a moldy building. Other people may take 5, 10, 15 minutes. Some people aren't aware until the next day when they yeah. feel really yeah. crummy. And, but regardless what it is, you know, I teach them, you need to pay attention to that because that's your body telling you, get the heck out. And at the same point, um, if you can teach me a way to teach them how to, how to key into that so that they can tell almost immediately without having a mold dog with them or something like that, um, that will help them tremendously. I would love to talk to you about that. Yeah, we can connect on that when we reconnect to talk about like you and Eric partnering more. I think that would be a, actually a really great opportunity to, to bring that more mainstream to people. So I would love that. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks again, Dr. McMahon. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Keely. And and thank you, Alicia, for making this happen. Absolutely. And thank you to Heather. She she was instrumental in very thank you to Heather who makes (laughs) everything happen for me. Makes the world go round for you. All right, Dr. McMahon. You take care. God bless you guys. Bye-bye. We want to thank you for listening. Just sending a friendly reminder that what we say is not intended as medical advice. 
but information to expand your thinking surrounding common situations and issues within the mold community. If you like what we do, please support us by making a donation in the link in our show notes. We also provide one-on-one consultations, products to help with symptom management that you can find in our shop, and a private membership group filled with a supportive community of peers working together to heal from toxic mold. As a friendly reminder, Exposing Mold is a 501c3 nonprofit and every donation is tax deductible. Thank you so much for your support and we look forward to providing you with the most honest information out there on mold and mold issues. Please visit ExposingMold.org for more information.